Welcome to the Miss Medical Podcast, Diagnosis Flatline. I'm your host, Destry Godwin. Miss Medical explores stories of misdiagnosis, malpractice, mysteries, and misogyny. You're my interns, and this is where true crime and medicine collide. This is Miss Medical. Today's episode is one that hits close to home for me, and it's one of every parent's worst nightmares. It's May of 2015 in Elgin, Texas, which is a small city of about 10,000 people, located just 40 minutes from the heart of Austin. Lorena Troy and her husband Jason had one son, who was four years old, and they were counting down the days until Lorena would give birth to their second son. The family was over the moon when baby JJ was born. It's often common for second babies to be larger than first babies, though the process of laboring is frequently reported as being faster and easier with second births. While I don't have specific details about JJ's birth, I'd imagine Lorena couldn't have been all that surprised that JJ's head measured large right from the start. If you recall, our last child also had an exceptionally large head when he was born. I do indeed. That was a difficult birth. Yes. What should have been probably the easiest birth being the third child was actually probably one of the most difficult given his size. And it wasn't just a large head. He was almost 11 pounds. Yeah, that didn't, that definitely didn't help either. Yep. Shortly after they settled back in at home, Lorena and her husband noticed that JJ would vomit frequently. And this was more than just newborn spit up. They also knew that this was abnormal compared to how their older son had been as an infant. They made several trips to their doctor to the local urgent care center, and even to the emergency room to raise their concerns about JJ's health, trusting their intuition that he was unwell. They were disheartened, though, when they were continually dismissed and told JJ seemed well enough to not warrant any medical investigation. After JJ's four-month appointment, however, JJ's pediatrician did become concerned about his overall health. He ordered an MRI to be done of JJ's head, which would require JJ to go to the local hospital to have that test completed. Lorena had reluctantly decided to stay home with their older son as she was suffering from mastitis at the time, which is an unfortunately common condition in breastfeeding women that involves inflammation of the breast tissue. This can be mild or it can involve an infection causing pain, swelling, fever, and chills. While Lorena stayed home to rest, Jason took JJ in for what he expected to be a routine MRI. He had no idea 
how much that appointment was going to turn his life upside down. When Lorena saw a call coming in from her husband later that day, she answered right away, anxious for news about JJ. But instead of easing her mind, she felt her heart drop into her stomach as soon as she heard her husband's panicked voice on the other end of the line. The bad news came first. The MRI had shown that baby JJ had fluid building up around his brain. But the worst news came second. They were accusing the family of inflicting shaken baby syndrome on little JJ. Oh, I cannot imagine anything worse than that. The turmoil and the roller coaster that that must be to not only find yeah. out that your four month old infant is seriously ill, but then to have the finger pointed at you. Yeah. So you're, you're trying to, you're worrying, you're mourning and you're being blamed at the same time. I just can't even imagine. Lorena did what any mother would. She packed up her four-year-old and headed straight to the hospital. When she got there, the doctors told her the same thing they had told Jason. JJ had excess fluid around his brain, and they suspected shaken baby syndrome. They had already notified Child Protective Services at that point, who arrived at the hospital shortly after to investigate the suspected abuse. Lorena and Jason were both interrogated separately and alone. I can't imagine what they must have felt at that point, not only to be told there was a problem with their baby's brain and to be accused of abuse, but then to not even have the support of each other as they face child protective service workers. Wow. Lorena, desperate to understand the situation asked the doctor if there was a differential diagnosis. She wanted to know if there was any other reason JJ might have fluid building up that wouldn't have been caused by abuse. She knew that she had never, and would never, shake baby JJ, which meant if there wasn't a differential diagnosis, the finger was being pointed at her husband. The doctor seemed to have his mind made up already, though, and he told Lorena that, yes, there were other conditions that could cause this, but since he's a baby and he can't talk to tell them what's going on, they're going to assume that it's abuse. Lorena cooperated with the Child Protective Service workers, who seemed to believe her that she hadn't shaken baby JJ, but they didn't seem as convinced that her husband hadn't. They told her she would be permitted to take the baby home, but only on the condition that she formulate what they call a safety plan. That plan involved Jason to move out of the house immediately. It also required that a family member move in with Lorena to supervise her with the baby. Suddenly, her husband had been shut out and she was no longer allowed to be unsupervised with her own children. What is going on? That is insanity. And for it to happen so quickly, too. Yep. Lorena and Jason followed the safety order for the sake of their children, but there was no way for them to know that they really didn't stand a chance either way. JJ's condition was stable, but not improving over the next few weeks. 
But aside from the stress of trying to understand JJ's health problems, Lorena faced every parent's worst nightmare when there was a knock at the door. Child Protective Services, with police officers in tow, had arrived to remove the children. The children were taken immediately and placed into a foster home. Lorena had never felt so helpless to protect her children. And as for Jason, he was facing two felony charges for child abuse and had lost his job from the allegations. What is happening? How can, how can this be the route that they went down? I'm like in shock right now because I relate to uh, having young kids and, you know, being blindsided by something and then being powerless. Yes. Poor family. Yeah. It's so hard on the flip side, though, because you can also see where the hospital and child protective services are coming in from where baby JJ he can't tell them that it's not abuse and they don't want to risk ignoring the situation if that is what's going on and putting the kids' lives at risk. Do you know the the biggest, I think, problem with this is that they're not just being thrown in the bag with people that, or parents that maybe have done this in the past, which has led to these processes having to be in place. I'm sure they didn't have meetings with counselors and professionals that say listen this is the process but it's just a process and Mm -hmm. I don't want you to panic when when police come it's just part of you know it would have been shocking for them and the shock almost makes it probably 10 times worse yes you're not ready for that and there's really no way for you to defend yourself nope. if you didn't do it. But you you must have some sort of doubt at the same time, though. Like, yeah. I would imagine on for her and her husband, if she knows that she hasn't ever abused her kids or shaken a baby, yeah. then there would be that voice, I think, in the back of your mind at some point, right or wrong, that would think, well, what if they're right, though? What if he was shaken and there's only one other adult in the household. The only thing I can think of that maybe they could have done to maybe avoid it getting worse here is just to have cameras in every room recording all the time. Well, I mean, they had to have a family member move in to supervise her with the baby. Yeah. Yeah. Lorena didn't even see her children for a full week and a half after they were removed. Desperate, Lorena and Jason hired private attorneys and jumped through the required hoops with child protective services after five whole months of fighting even a court appointed special advocate was on their side recommending that the children be returned home by that point Lorena and Jason had sold their house and maxed out their credit card to pay more than $80,000 in legal fees just trying to bring their children home. Holy moly. JJ's health did not improve during his time in foster care, and even his older brother suffered from the stress of it. At only four years old, he lost a total of 20 pounds during his time in care. The entire family was hurting. The real turning point didn't come for the family until JJ finally got the proper diagnosis. Benign external hydrocephalus, which is a condition where fluid builds up around the outside of the brain. Finally, 
with an answer to explain all of the medical problems, the children were allowed to return home and the charges against Jason were dropped. Man, I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time keeping quiet here. I would be all over suing the agency that put them through that. Just, oh, I feel like I, I would just lose it. Right. But right? but with what they had already been through, like when you think of them selling their house yeah. and maxing out credit cards and yeah. spending 80 grand just trying to get their kids back. Yeah, I don't I just, know how yeah. much fight they'd have left at that point. Yeah, I guess the most important thing is the kids are home. But anyway... Got to keep my emotions in check here. That just hits so close to home. I can't even imagine what they went through. I know, especially with him being so young too, right? Like being removed at only four months old and like they're just so tiny and vulnerable at that age and you just want every minute with them and to miss out on months of his life at that stage. Like to keep it in perspective, when like I work away sometimes for work and when I miss a bedtime routine or uh, some of those little moments that are kind of routine. But every one I miss or two I miss, I feel like, oh, I'm not going to get that back. Mm-hmm. And I, and, but it's, it's sort of justified. It's, it's for career and for work and to yeah. support family. And same, same for you too. You miss some. But uh, for the sake of a mis, misdiagnosis or I'm not even sure what you'd call it. Yeah. An allegation. Yeah. All right. Carry on. <laughs> so... JJ ended up having a shunt implanted to help drain the excess fluid that was around his brain, which provided immediate relief from his symptoms. He is now a happy and healthy seven-year-old boy. Lorena and Jason did consider suing the doctor who misdiagnosed him and resulted in the months of anguish and turmoil for their family, But the statute of limitations had expired after two years, and the family decided instead to lean on compassion and forgiveness. Lorena actually went on to write a book about their journey and experiences titled Miracles of Faith, Our Child Was Misdiagnosed and It Greatly Affected Our Lives, which I'm sure would be a great read to pick up if you do want to know more about JJ's story and the journey the family endured. Misdiagnoses happen in healthcare whether we like to focus on them or not. Sometimes there is no lasting negative effect, but other times it can tear a family apart or even result in the loss of life, intentional or not. I'm glad JJ's story has a happy ending, and I hope that as time has passed, the family has had the time to heal though I'm sure they will carry the emotional scars for the rest of their lives. You're just, you're just shaking your head. Oh, I'm, just, I'm not going to be able to let this one go. Someone taking your kids away and you've done, because you cared for them enough to be worried to try to fix something that's wrong. Mm-hmm. You, you know, as a parent, you're like, something's wrong, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And then to get blamed and then you take your kids taken away. I find some of the most powerful stories that we hear in all realms of life, but particularly like this, are the ones that you relate to. Yeah. And, you know, as a dad with young kids, it's almost overwhelming to imagine this scenario playing yeah. out. And it's it's funny. It's a very, it's a short podcast yeah. with, a sh- you know, not so many medical details mm-hmm. as such, but the effect on me is far more than some of the other things that we've mm-hmm. we've talked about. 
I think with this story, part of the reason that I wanted to cover this one was the same as you. I relate a lot to this as a parent and in in our own personal life, like having our oldest when he was four months, five months old, um, and he had a rash on his face. And I took him to the doctors thinking that it was an allergic reaction of some kind. Mm -hmm. And we were sent to the emergency room and they brought us in and told me that his face had a bruise on it, that it wasn't a rash. It wasn't an allergy. It was bruising. It was blood under the skin. And they, you know, with me being a young parent at that point, they had a social worker come in to start asking like, does the baby cry a lot? Do you get angry when he cries? Do you leave baby alone with anybody? What were you doing today? And it was, it was exactly like this. It's your worst nightmare. Like, you know, something's wrong and you're trying to do the right thing. And suddenly you're under a microscope where they're assuming that you've abused your infant. Mm -hmm. And in my case, one of the only reasons that I feel like I got so lucky was because I had a family member who was in residency to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And we ended up phoning her to come to the hospital. And she kind of gave them a bit of crap and just said, you know, absolutely do your line of questioning, but you need to be running tests as well. Yeah, because there is something else going on here. Right. And uh, when they put the uh, elastic band around his arm to take blood, his entire arm just turned purple. He just started bleeding out into his skin. It was a platelet thing? Yeah, it was ITP. Right. And they didn't know that at the time. And as soon as they saw that, it was an entire, you know, team of consults. And they actually said to not expect to leave with a living child again. They they thought it was leukemia that was severely advanced. Wow. Okay, first of all, ITP, I know um, what it does, but I don't know what it stands for. Idiopathic thrombocytopedia <laughs> Okay, good one. Um, and it's second. where your body destroys its own platelets, basically. Yeah. And why would they think it was late-stage leukemia? Um, because his blood cell count was so low. Um, red blood cell count. Right. Okay. So like in a healthy person, you're like parts per whatever for platelets would normally be between 150 to 400. Mm-hmm. Um, and his were at four. Oh, and it was, okay. um, he was seen at a children's, like a teaching children's hospital. And yeah. he was the lowest recorded case of the lowest platelet count that survived that they had ever seen. Wow. And he was the youngest case of ITP that they had ever seen survive. He had to have yeah. like hourly ultrasounds on his head to make sure he wasn't bleeding, bleeding into, into his, his brain. Because if, he, if he'd fallen yes, as a he, young child, he would have died. hit his head, that would have been it. Yeah. 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 So we yeah. spent, you know, days in the hospital getting transfusions. And when they wow. couldn't actually find any cancer, they came to the diagnosis of ITP. And I mean, knock on wood, he fully recovered and has never had another episode. But that feeling of being in the hospital with a sick infant, you know, something is wrong and you just want them to fix it. And they stand there and ask you if you get mad when your baby cries and ask if you've hit your child. It's mind blowing how upsetting it is. Yeah. And, you know, in defense of, I guess, social workers and the process they have to go through, they have to probably have a thick skin 
because mm-hmm. they do those are the people that deal with kids that are maybe barely conscious that have been beaten mm-hmm. or you know the unfortunately process to determine if this was the cause or not yeah it is unfortunately hard very hard for a parent who hasn't done anything wrong yeah but everyone has to go through that same hoop yeah and it and it's so hard because there is a very you know that side of it is very valid and especially now I work in a children's emergency room Mm -hmm. and so we do see a lot of things come in where we have to get social work involved or we have to get child protective services involved and I'm sure some of those are not necessarily situations where that's warranted but because we have to be very cautious when it comes to child welfare we want to cover all of our bases but I think the bigger takeaway of the importance here is that while that line of questioning needs to happen Mm -hmm. we also need to be ruling out if there is any other cause so you know in JJ's case absolutely talk to them about it, have a social worker sit down with them, Yep. but run your other tests to make sure that it's not something else. Yeah, absolutely. I think if there's something that we can all take away from this and learn from it is if we're rushing into a children's hospital or any hospital with our children, mm-hmm. that there are hoops that our medical system in our modern world requires everyone to jump through. Yeah. And if we can be prepared ahead of time to jump through those hoops, I think we will not only perform better at them and they will maybe get pushed aside more efficiently. Mm -hmm. It will allow doctors to do their job and to continue trying to find what is wrong rather than getting held up in this shock mode of what are you talking about? No one, you know. Yeah. Going in prepared, knowing that, you know, it's, when that line of questioning comes, you know, 99% of the time that is never meant maliciously. It is people who are just doing their best trying to protect the welfare of children. And knowing that going into it gives you a chance to, to be prepared and calm and navigate those conversations. Yeah. Cause until this podcast, if I'd been home alone with our sons and one of them had fallen and I'm like, Oh, like, you know, he was, Maybe he'd knocked himself out, woken up. I'm like, oh, yeah. his, his brain might be swimming. We've got to get him to ER right away. Run through the door. And then the first thing you're going to say is, yeah, he, he fell. He fell down the stairs. <laughs> yeah, sure he did. Right. Me knowing, I might even go as far as to say, I know the process and I know that I, you're going to need to call social. Yeah. And please, let's get that done as soon as possible because um, I, I'm I'm scared for him. Like, and, yeah. And, yeah, let's not hold up the other things that need right. to happen here while we wait for that call social, but also please be doing a CT or yeah. an ultrasound or something yeah. to make sure that, you know, we're covering all of our bases here. Amazingly, when you were telling, I was hearing that story for the first time, the emotion that I went to when you said that they pointed to child abuse and shaken baby syndrome, do you mm-hmm. know what it made me feel? Anger. Yeah. And I can imagine that they, as the parents, they must have felt that too. Yes. Yeah. For you to feel it when it's not even your child. Yeah. And you think a social worker, when they see that you're angry, like it's just, you've got to know the system. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? right? Oh, why are you angry? Do you get angry a lot? (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. Moral of the story. I mean, hopefully no one ever has to go through, knock on wood, sick or mm. injured children to that degree. But if you do, just know that there are processes in place that are there to keep everyone safe and they don't mean ill will, but know what you're going to be up against when you go in there. Yep. For sources and additional show notes, follow the link in the episode summary to our website. If you'd like to see pictures related to the episodes and the Miss Medical Podcast, you can find us on Instagram as Miss Medical Podcast. If you love Miss Medical and want to support the show, find us on Patreon where you can officially join the intern team. All episodes are written by myself and aim to be as factually accurate as possible. Music is an original composition recorded and produced by Jason Chamberlain. And of course, make sure you follow the podcast on your chosen platform so you never miss an episode.